Welcome to the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions nationwide. Season one of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Joshua Beckman during his tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer, and links to accessory materials like transcriptions, interviews, and other writings. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they are available, subscribe now. This week, we'll hear Joshua Beckman give his lecture, Friendship, Porousness, and the Intimate Experience of Poetry. This lecture was given May 22, 2014, at the Poetry Foundation. Joshua Beckman's Bagley Wright lectures attempt to articulate and conjure for the listener the private and shared experiences one can have through reading and listening to poetry. Beckman attends to imaginative reality as well as physical artifacts, including beloved dead poets, friendship as viewed through the lens of reading, the book object, and his own writing process as seen through the lives of the poems. Please enjoy. I was on Cape Cod. I saw a boy on the beach. He had a fishing pole. He was sort of walking around and he had a kite attached to the fishing pole, I guess, so he could hold it up and so he could reel it in and out. It was ingenious, and he was wearing shorts and a little shirt, so he looked like an English boy. And even now, I just sort of picture him like two old etchings drawn together, the kite flying above him out of the picture. I walked around reading Cape Cod, that being alone, feeling alone, and in actual space, that actual space and sand and water, all those bodies washed up on the beach in 1849. Coldness, vastness, and presence, kicking sand around and looking out at the clouds, that sense of form that finds itself constantly rearticulating in them. Flying a kite, you provide attention, attempts at something physical, familiarity and awareness, you're pulling at it, it in the air. Air sometimes forms itself as wind, into winds, winds varying and indiscreet. So catching causes form, attention, gives it form. What stories bear repeating, news of the day we demonstrate the motions of earth, its shape. Birds pass through trees or sit watching or in song, not sounding afraid. Eyes make walls, dissolving stone, but blinded, the waves seize how forgotten stars dashed in the water. That's Larry Eigner 50 years ago this week. What stories bear repeating news of the day we demonstrate the motions of earth, its shape. Birds pass through trees or sit watching or in song, not sounding afraid. Eyes make walls, dissolving stone, but blinded. 
the waves, seas, how forgotten stars dashed in the water. In world, a kind of span, in span, a kind of time, a presence, and a feeling cooperative, simultaneous. Form realized and released, a temporary state, a selfness, a meditation, a shared state and a dispersal in that sharing. Partially, just because you're watching the kite move around in the sky while you're doing it with your hands. It's a physical thing like listening or walking, that responsive presence propelled, or just a loafing and wandering about in it, but in it, a not getting there, getting there, or going, a kind of physical distraction guided by attractions, concerns, and leanings, like walking, the poems, something free, formed, and moving, access and reflective space of, for the constant art of natural formation. Like if a waterfall were made of the earth and rock it flows over, or just say clouds, the forming and changing of themselves, making themselves. Even while they are existing in a book, all those words are out there doing other things. While you're reading them in your poem, they are out there in the world as well, kind of polyamorous, suggestible, and infinitely occupied. The poem comes and I feel as though I am trying to recognize it as something temporary. Through the experience of writing, in the same way it appears temporary through the experience of reading, capable of remaining temporary. Moment of today, the way it elevates out, the heat obliterates the walls of the house, indoors, outdoors, the children's cries, the birds keep on and cars go by. That's Larry Eigner again around the same time. The heat obliterates the walls of the house, indoors, outdoors, the children's cries, the birds keep on and cars go by. Sometimes, I think of the poem as something discreetly placed in time, that the appreciable experience of the poem happens primarily in that moment of engagement or reflection. But doesn't it happen so many other times too? And maybe that's not even it. Maybe it is just that things that are alive or were alive don't seem finite. When dead seem gone, sure, but seemed gone at other times too, and seem here sometimes, alive, even now. And poetry falls into that space between. When reading aloud, confronted by embraced real presence, you are there in the poem, among the enacted world, which happens when poems are getting made as well. Robert Creeley says, what I have written I knew little of until I had written it. If at times I have said that I enjoy what I write, I mean that writing is for me the most viable and open condition of possibility in the world. Things have happened there as they have happened nowhere else. In poems, I have both discovered and borne testament to my life in ways no other possibility has given me. Can I like what I may prove to be or does it matter? 
Am I merely living for my own approval? In writing, it has seemed to me that such small senses of existence were altogether gone, and that, at last, the world came true. Far from being its limit or director, the wonder is that I have found myself there also. I think of the haiku poets, spirit of presence and openness, haiku as conduit, response, and proof. So the life of the haiku poet is to exist and integrate thoroughly and fluidly into that existence, the poetic act. The ways of being in the world are in its way, through its way, a kind of metabolism, social like loving, shared, Basho and Sora wandering off toward Kyoto, making poems, making poems with each other and with others, beneath their rain hats, walking around and encountering the haiku they make and remember, the places they live and are in, the communal sense in that depository of shared theme, a collaborative history alive in all that personhood, some poems made like dragging a magnet through one's living day and seeing what form the filings take. The magnetized self and and with others. Always some social sense of being in the poems made, the act of it temporary and uneventful, or really maybe temporary and mostly eventful. And this feels strange if you are considering a poem as a single thing, some unalterable bit of perfection, finite and resolute in its completeness. But that's just a way to think about poems. That desire for certain is there, repeated often and authoritatively. But isn't the reality more organic and changing? Think of the poetic oral traditions around the world for centuries and centuries. Their stories constructing and happening, the encounter of people in space and time, they are made to exist. If people are there, you are speaking to them, changing for them the story as you speak it. Various repetitions and highlit senses become central, a kind of guidance. Think of the troubadours coming to town, wandering around and incorporating the people they found into their tales, drawing them toward the spots where they would eventually perform, an audience now an active, visible part of the narrative, following to hear what happened to them. And it's not just the oral traditions. Think of ancient fragments anecdotally kept and written down. Think of the entire practice of translation. Think of Walt Whitman changing his one book and many poems over and over again. Or Emily Dickinson leaving us countless private variances to be considered. All the variorum editions of our most esteemed poets. And most poems never end up in print at all private accumulation of drafts to be gone through or not. 
but still to exist, variant and real. And now, in the 21st century, it's basically moot again. Easy to love the poets, their splendor, falling all over the pages, extorting atomic rainbows. Easy to love the poets, their splendor, falling all over the pages into my lap. That's Elise Cowan. Easy to love the poets, their splendor, falling all over the pages, extorting atomic rainbows. Easy to love the poets, their splendor, falling all over the pages into my lap. I'm trying to imagine now the central experience of the poem as something temporary. And so I imagine it as something allowed, something spoken out, or allowed inside you, a muscular compulsion, the livingness, a spell, and the space of it as the dancer articulating space moves around, their bodies moving around in what seemed empty, and then are there, or there it is, or here we are, making spaces too with poems. We make them, are in them, made by them, a resonance and accumulation. The poem more and more an experience, a flash of being. When I step through the door, everything has changed, finally. It is out the door, past homes, down the trail. The lovely beach draws me into her drawing. Finally, I am past the fear of life's paucity, green angels, stream, and hot California. And in the stillness, seeds popping. That's Joanne Kiger. When I step through the door, everything has changed. Finally, it is out the door, past homes, down the trail. The lovely beach draws me into her drawing. Finally, I am past the fear of life's paucity. Green angels stream in hot California and in the stillness, seeds popping. Reading and writing and art kind of closer to drawing than painting. Drawing as thing which breaks discrete boundaries. Drawing its incomplete presence allowed in, its fragmentary way essential. It's what it is, time. Traditional painters using drawing as a way to identify borders by going through them, over them, by failing in ways their paintings couldn't, in ways they didn't want their masterpieces to fail. I think of Emerson, him saying, that friendship is the masterpiece of nature. Or really, he says, it may very well be the masterpiece of nature, with that little bit of uncertainty. This conception of masterpiece is, by its nature, unfixed. That it is moving, that it will remain so, always in flux, temporary. I'm thinking of clouds again and people but also that it can only be understood, that it can only be recognized fully from the inside, privately, intimately, not separate and above and glorified beyond. So the masters concerned with their masterpieces would make these drawings, these studies, seeing the edges of the visible and to do so seeding all sorts of control and accuracy to something expressive and spontaneous. 
How else find the look on that person's face or the emotion of that stone house? And there is something about this drawing, this unrestrained extension beyond, embraced in poems. The improvisation, sure, toward art, but also as art. The act as art, as poetry, the partial, the social, the bodily, the private, the free. I remember a terrible professor in school saying that if you put a Rembrandt on a cliff and pushed someone off the cliff, its expression wouldn't change. <laughs> Anyhow, that's the argument. And of course, there are plenty of arguments for that, but I wonder, what I wonder is why demand a more isolated value if what you want is something more communal? If your presence is already demanding something more communal from the art? But it is just a ridiculous notion to pose, to propose a separation of one human from the other ones. I feel friendship's continual presence, the way a poem might stay with you, a poet, the exuberant passions and attractions, the being consumed and inside of it, everything in and through it, the poem unrestrained, sincerely present and improvisational, at its core an exposure of unknowing, complex and unanswered, unconcerned with propriety or etiquette, the freedom that is friendship, the consent to accept that allows the friend unrestrained to speak and to be heard, not immediately designated or judged, but encountered. I think it's that I found in the poems when I found the poems I loved. Some ecstatic circuit's been joined, and that's how friendship feels. I found you came in the room and started talking and ironing. I turned on the radio, the night rose around us. I forget, you were looking at me. I came in the room and started ironing. The night rose around us, the pinnacles, the far off spines of trees like the lakes under us, hollow stones to go through in the distance, close the eye, brings the breeze under us, through us, over us. That's Joanne Kiger again. I found you came in the room and started talking and ironing. I turned on the radio, the night rose around us. I forget, you were looking at me. I came in the room and started ironing. The night rose around us, the pinnacles, the far off spines of trees like the lakes under us, hollow stones to go through in the distance, close the eye, brings the breeze under us, through us, over us. I'm moving with the poem. I've found it, I can hear it. The experience of reading and listening aloud, it's something so surprising, more future than past. You can recognize it and you can tend to it in a way that other things disappear and you move through the space of the poem, in the poem's present, some other present receding. I'm hearing and speaking at the same time. It's strange, but my lips move when I write. 
And this is what I'm feeling about reading aloud. Reading aloud, I get drawn to stand up. I expand my chest. I move my arms. I rock or sway. My head or jaw bobs in some strange rhythmic fashion. Or I whisper or I mumble. I close in my shoulders. My body making intimate my reverberations. Just moving my lips to make that to make and hear the words form physical and sounding out over and over touching my lips to each other and if I cover my mouth there my breath is on my hand or close my eyes to rehear a line I become occupied by the poem breathing as it breathes or talking as it talks some poems call on you to act as they act perform their performance I find myself in some dramatic vogue when I read poems like Frank O'Hara's Mary Desty's Ass. It begins, in Bayreuth once, we were very good friends of the Wagners, and I stepped in once for Isadora so perfectly, she would never allow me to dance again. That's the way it was in Bayreuth. And he's doing the same thing too. And by right once, we were very good friends of the Wagners. And I stepped in once for Isadora so perfectly, she would never allow me to dance again. That's the way it was in Bayreuth. The whole thing a cinematic pleasure like one might find in front of the mirror or in the shower. My dear reader, read aloud if possible, writes a 19th century philosopher. If you do so, allow me to thank you for it. If you not only do it yourself, if you also influence others to do it, allow me to thank each one of them and you again and again. By reading aloud, you will gain the strongest impression that you have only yourself to consider. There are some poems that attempt to release and exhale the exaggerations of personality and affect. And some of those exhalations become poems. And some of the freer breathings become poems. And in reading them, the body comes to be differently, not acting out at all, just being. Over the lilacs, won't he come home to at least rest tonight? I want to see the round car safe in the driveway, cinders and the moon overhead. That's Joanne Kiger waiting. Over the lilacs, won't he come home to at least rest tonight? I want to see the round car safe in the driveway, cinders and the moon overhead. I feel different, and it all feels different, like a counterbalance to the annoyingly persistent sense of self that seems so intent on being itself. And allows, and allows at times a sense of self that feels outside of myself, but still there, right in myself as well. There's this therapeutic practice in which the therapist touches the patient or asks the patient to do some physical task like holding onto the table edge or their own hand. And in doing this, occupies the body of the patient and directs the conscious mind of the patient to that occupation. 
and in doing so allows some more fluid access to the self, then the therapist asks a question. Relieved at least from some conscious inhibitions and barriers by this occupation, and reading aloud can be basically the same thing, a guide provided, so you are occupied in the bodily performance of it, your conscious critical mind applied to the task, the self of you in a cloud of experience, sound and sense and the performing of it, the body pulsing with its own enactment, the reverberations in one expressive and real, the space and zone engaged as one might in the world world, unattributing and human, like wandering around. Then the poem experience causing experience in everything, its effective potential on myself of that of what to me is recognizable or some way bodily, sensually attended, spiritually present, a compostable mass always heaving and sprouting, sores and flowers on the pile, things microscopic, the glass fashioned full, the brutal physicality of actions and their results after their results. Or is the poem a reflection of a combination of physical needs? I need my voice, my body, my spirit to make these sounds and so out they come, out to meet those needs. The result of writing those poems being that those things got said and the experience of reading being I said them. I saw myself a ring of bone in the clear stream of all of it and vowed always to be open to it that all of it might flow through. And then heard ring of bone, where ring is what a bell does. That's Lou Welch. I saw myself a ring of bone in the clear stream of all of it and vowed always to be open to it that all of it might flow through. And then heard ring of bone where Ring is what a bell does. A friend calls me up and says, monks reading rules as devotional forms. I play it over a bunch of times. Monks monkhood being the ways read aloud, I hear the answering machine. That way you'd be at attention. That moment you'd be there in that cloud of presence being talked to, no spoken with some strange thing that was made and barely existed until it got heard, some faithful expanse of time between leaving it and then like a letter and then it being listened to and then it being gone. I try to get on with people, they owe me, I don't, or it's the wrong size and I oversleep. Put me back two days, look, and I'll catch you Saturday, great. That's Stephen Jonas. I try to get on with people, they owe me, I don't, or it's the wrong size and I oversleep. Put me back two days, look, and I'll catch you Saturday, great. Filled with a voice and human presence, it exceeds tone that they were written, that they make place. I live inside and there we are together. I'm talking, I'm listening. We've all, we're all doing this together privately. 
the loose attachment to forms and things as they pass, that even whole you move by, the sense of being there increases, forms of attended things temporarily present, washes of sense and place as with consciousness, that one at times recognizes one's own forms, states it inhabits, you inhabit it, spans of distance and the energy they release. So the coming together I'm interested in is of the organic and the infinite, the thing which disallows a real inquirer from accepting finite boundaries, the disinhibiting of expressive responsive presence, making poems, making poems sound out in ways, in new ways, those private newnesses I feel when the poem comes out of me aloud, myself and world more open, each time you read, experience sheds knowing as it acquires new knowings, each time a kind of regeneration and simultaneous decay, the poem feels alive, the discursive, how packed lives and by the echo dissolved at the forcing together a pile of screens you could leave acquire time flies reverberating the dark house and the vast sun moving out slowness level of it all approach night the clouds to the sea stirred on that's larry eigner the discursive how packed lives and by the echo dissolved as the forcing together a pile of screens, you could leave, acquire time, flies reverberating, the dark house and the vast sun moving out, slowness, level of it all, approach night, the clouds to the sea stirred on. The poem embraced, it can expand, an opening that's by, that by its nature extends beyond the initial relation to how it was made. Sometimes it happens while you are there or later echoes heard resonating and partial in your life. The indiscretion of it and how the openness, its actualities are the real present thing. We see capability as strength, but it's weakness too. Being on the beach all day and then closing your eyes tight and then seeing it again. A private blood pulse of feeling and presence or lack, like acts of passive corruption, bodily demand and seizure, each tiny physical effect, my ears to bells, a kind of cone-like ringing through which in the park I hear wheels and voices. Weakness is the very hallmark of genius, for it provides the point of least resistance in human nature through which the force of nature may enter the human world. Also, the pain, the way pain sometimes compounds and centralizes in a place in your body, later spreading back out, later gone, and it is the oscillation of feeling and effect as the balance of something coming into view, its recognition and surprise. There's no purchase on it. Sunday, 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 a quiet, 
along the empty walks. Single bird speaks to blue sky, to elm, heavy with summer, empty and alive, empty and alive, empty and alive. The simple act of drinking a cup of coffee, the simple act of pulling up one's trousers, buckling the belt, having shit washed hands and face, go to work, empty and alive, heavy with summer, light with the promise of death. Bright books in the bookcase, window open, the day comes in, oh, fade the carcinoma, lay down the two dollars, all those others rolling dice, but it's my body, I'll bet on that. Oh, it floats through the blood with the greatest of ease. The pain goes and comes again, the cat hunts in the grass, the gull swings over the sea, the blood sings a very old tune, Take it easy, it's Sunday, no? All day. That's Paul Blackburn from his journal four months before he died. I don't think I'll read that one again, but maybe this other one by him. 520 and you can bet it's AM. Everybody needs go work. Two cats cross the street. I need not go work. I need, what are those two cats doing? 520, and you can bet it's, it's AM. Everybody needs go work. Two cats cross the street. I need not go work. I need, what are those two cats doing? The inside space as one feels with sound. One's body vibrates with a sense of things. And so a continuous climate of sensation, even expression, as one feels when one listens to music and is alive with that music, a kind of expressive attention, a part of what is happening, one feels essential, not the distance of appreciation or even some collaborative necessity to the completion of the work, but vibrating and responding so that characteristics of you and it become shared in a way as music is often consuming, uh, listening, you can become part of it. The blood in your body, your skin too, sometimes your muscles and bones and everything. Sometimes you dance around, sometimes your pulse calms, etc. And I wonder, I wonder to what extent this is allowed by the general expectation that music's receiver is not the intellect. Rarely does one apply that type of intelligence to a listening experience. Imagine the fluid role of thoughts, actions, emotions one finds in listening and how easy on oneself one is in that dumb, overtaken state, or the theoretical drifting one does while listening that one's mind wanders, that one is unsettled, that the sensual experience seems to dominate does not make us feel any less that we are aware of what we have heard. In fact, we can feel the proximity of the meaning, no, of a meaning, of the art, despite our, our inability to define it. In fact, it may be that like human instances and relationships, we are capable of the meaning only as we remain unable to complete it with definition. To understand is to complete. To try and understand is to try and complete. 
And for a poem, which is a real thing, a living thing, organic and changing, capable, sure, of a different kind of life than, say, a botanist or a daffodil, but still so capable of interactive presence as to deny its inanimate status. So to desire to understand fully, fully being the more important word, is the desire to complete, and the completion of the poem is the death of the poem. And here it feels important to state that the desire for some or much understanding, the prodding and pointing at parts of the poem, the isolation of the language so that its use be comprehended, the parsing of part from part, the assessing of sound or any particular of the poem, the investigation or underlying philosophies, histories, biographies, etc., decoding, deciphering, to name a few, none of these are, of course, in, in and of themselves detrimental. Simply, I'm proposing that if one leads with one's intellect, one can find oneself done with the poem some way or another soon enough, and that that being done can be a kind of betrayal of the poem. If you don't care for the poem or the poet, that betrayal is not such a big deal. But if you don't care much for the poem, I suggest you stop reading it and allow its fragmentary self to be, to move on, the language, locate I love you somewhere in teeth and eyes, bite it, but take care not to hurt. You want so much, so little words say everything, I love you again, then what is emptiness for to fill? Fill, I heard words and words full of holes, aching, speech is a mouth. That's Robert Creeley. Locate, I love you, somewhere in teeth and eyes, bite it, but take care not to hurt. You want so much so little, Words say everything, I love you again. Then what is emptiness for? To fill, fill. I heard words and words full of holes, aching. Speech is a mouth. That experience of knowing bodily, of self being in some place, being present in that place, not just the conjuring of spaces and things that are and make the environment of our poems. That moment and its castings, the poem, not that you understand them, but that they are there. I think of the most impassioned communications as angry crying fights blown out with fragmented abstractions of hurt and anger, mostly partial and repeated words and sentences interrupting and unfinishing itself so one might be inside a swim of words and sound without comprehensively expressed thought, but meaning more full. And the other more pleasant passions act the same, I think. Abstraction can be porous like that. That folding cavalcade of words, words with their images, their thought and resonance, meant to allow an attentive drift almost meditatively forming, meaning temporarily held. I like reading like that. I think feeling like that's when the poem's alive rush or faucet like pouring out. You'll go through it and just have to go through it again. 
the forming, the coming together. I was reading in the center this idea about openness, the core of art, its making, its appreciation and time, the distraction that is access, to never let it be just one formed thing. Its capability is in flux, the poet and the reader in flux so that each encounter as with a person is different. Once I began to write, be ruled by beauty and her willfulness and got no further, choking and wheezing, subject completely to the selfishness of my own history. I don't wonder that you doubt my love. My attention wanders even now, squinting at the moon, bamboo blinds, I should be with you, we're only blocks apart. The same imaginary beauty splits us up. I keep chasing the one who invents the mountains and the stars. I'm a fool supposing she's someone else than you, our moss and ferns and forest light. This last one's by Philip Whalen. It's called An Irregular Ode. Once I began to write, be ruled by beauty and her willfulness and got no further, choking and wheezing, subject completely to the selfishness of my own history. I don't wonder that you doubt my love. My attention wanders even now, squinting at the moon, bamboo blinds, I should be with you, we're only blocks apart. The same imaginary beauty splits us up. I keep chasing the one who invents the mountains and the stars. I'm a fool supposing she's someone else than you our moss and ferns and forest light. Thanks. That was Joshua Beckman giving his lecture Friendship, Porousness, and the Intimate Experience of Poetry. Beckman's book of collected Bagley Wright Lecture Series lectures, Three Talks, and the Lives of the Poems, was published by Wave Books in 2018 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarnot, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Weston Morrow and Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to the Poetry Foundation for partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. This is the last episode in season one. Please stay tuned and subscribe for season two. Music is I Recall by the Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.